Thank you, Justin. Good morning, everyone. It's great to see all of you and to have you um, watching online and those that are over in Brown Chapel, those that will be watching later, we welcome you and glad that you're part of the fellowship today. We, um, we're going to finish our three-part series. Well, it turned into four Sundays, but uh, on the normal Christian life, part one, we presented some things to hold on to. Um, it's for every child of God. Now, re remember, by way of review, not everyone has the same gifts and not everyone has the same ability, but there are, or, or even the same responsibility in serving the Lord. But there are some things that all of us need to hold on to. They were marked by the phrase, make every effort. And then we talked about there are some things to let go of. Uh, in other words, there are things we need to get rid of our lives that are easy to hold to. They were marked out in the book of Hebrews. Today we want to talk about living up to these things. And we're going to be reading from Matthew 25, if you'd like to turn in your Bibles. And uh, somebody asked me, they said, Pastor, it's always on the screen. Why do you tell us, you know, to turn in our Bibles? Well, number one, I'm old as dirt. And that's how it was when I was growing up. You had a Bible. And... Um, I was singing with one of my grandkids, Jesus loves me, this I know for the Bible tells me so. And I just want us to be careful that we don't produce a generation that doesn't know what a Bible is. So much is digital. I mean, there's, there's no sin in that. I don't mean that. But I just I want our kids to know what a Bible is because the grid may not always work and, and digital downloads may not always be available. But the Bible is a real book uh, that God has given us. And um, we're going to be reading from Matthew 25. But before we do that, we want to say our Lord's Prayer together. And let me say this. As you're preparing for the Lord's Prayer and finding Matthew 25, I want to thank Justin Smith, and I know there are those that helped him, um, and I, I just dare not try to call names, but I want to thank Justin for organizing our simulcast of the return yesterday. It was a real win. Um, Not only for our church, I think, um, Justin, I think probably when I was here, probably the most was about 70 people. Is that about right for yesterday? Uh, people would come and go and it went for 12 hours. So uh, not, not many people stayed for everything, uh, but Justin did. And uh, we want to thank Justin for that. And he did it on his birthday. Can you believe that? He did it on his birthday. And I want to thank you for your response on the return. I was so moved by the presence of the Lord that I felt um, at every venue. I watched it, whether it was here or at home or listening as I was driving. I felt such a presence of the Lord. I appreciate your response. We were, were well represented yesterday at the, the state house. And um, we praise God for the reports of you, even though we're still a little scattered, of you being so faithful to represent our church well and to serve the Lord well. So I wanted to say thank you for that. I love you so much. For those of you that have not been able to come back, maybe you're in that high-risk group, maybe you've been sick, please remember that you are loved, you are missed, and you are prayed for every day. 
Uh, let's join together with the Lord's Prayer as we begin this message today. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. I guess you've, uh, you've heard about the riots in London. Um, some are saying that they are caused by the crown. Others say that they are caused by the political parties. Others say they are caused by anarchists. Some say they are caused by the church. But um, the best we can tell, uh, England is on the brink of collapse as she's trying to deal with one of the most uh, monumental changes in her history. Oh, oh, did I tell you these were the riots of 1752? <laughs> I, didn't mean, I didn't mean to imply that it was going on right now. Now, in 1752, England did have riots. It was over the lost days of 1752. Let me tell you what was going on. Um, all of Europe, except for England, had been, uh, as most of the world had been, or the Western world, had been living by the Julian calendar, which was established by Julian, uh, uh, Julius Caesar uh, back in, I think, 46 uh, BC, somewhere right in there. It was designed by Julius Caesar. And Engl uh, England had stayed with the Julian calendar while the rest of Europe had gone on to what we call the Gregorian calendar. It's what we have now. Um, the, the, the calculation of days was done differently. Now, you know, we have leap year to balance out the the, the lack of precision in the calendar. Um, you say, well, what, why was this such a big deal? Well, England was becoming uh, uh, pretty well uh, one of the world powers, but their whole dating system, everything was, was different than the rest of the Western world. There was a miscalculation in the Julian calendar that they ended up with another day every 128 days and it went on for centuries, went on for centuries until they realized that Easter had gotten bumped out of the whole season of Easter. So they said, we've got to go ahead with the, with the rest of the world. And um, let me tell you, it was, a, it was a devastating thing because to shift from the Julian calendar to the Gregorian calendar meant 11 days disappeared off the calendar. Uh, so you went to bed on September 2nd and you woke up on September 14th. Now you say, well, boy, I, I, I wish I could do that sometime. Well, you got to understand, uh, first of all, the, the riots, the riots may not have been as widespread as was believed for a long time, but they were real. But there were basically three reasons for the riots. The first reason, the Tories, the party in power, felt like they were being robbed of 11 days of their administration. 
new elections were coming up and um, they were fearful that we have lost now, we will lose those 11 days to enact legislation that we want in legislation. So the cry of the Tories was, we want our 11 days back. But it wasn't just the politicians, it was the workers because all of a sudden they wanted to know why they weren't getting paid for September 3rd through 13th. Why aren't we paid for these days? And the business owners would say, well, you didn't work these days. We haven't missed any days. And it's September 14th. This is what we should be paid on September 14th. And the, the business owner says, but you didn't work. So the workers were uh, in a riotous mood. Um, the church was in a riotous mood because some of their holy days now disappeared. How would you like to have a St. Justin day and then it just be gone and not, not show up? It's sort of like being born on leap year. Nobody shows up for your birthday for four years, you know. <laughs> but this is the one that was the most devastating because this is where it got violent. It got violent in some cases. There were people that believed and not being grounded in Christian faith and not understanding exactly what was going on. There were people that believed they were being robbed of 11 days of their life. They believed that they would die 11 days sooner than they should have died. Now we, we chuckle about that, but it, it goes to show how, how, widespread opinions can be. You've got the, the church upset. You've got politicians upset. You've got businessmen upset. You've got workers upset. And then you have some people that didn't have a good worldview or understand what was happening that they said, you are taking 11 days from my life. So you can understand why there were difficulties and why there were riots. But what one pastor said to his congregation I don't have the exact wording and it was a very belabored thing. It wouldn't be something to read. But basically what he said, he says, dear brothers and sisters, under that they were, some of them were afraid they were, their life was being cut short by 11 days. They're dying 11 days earlier. This is what he said. He said, please understand, nobody has the power to take the gift of a single day that God has given you away from you. No king can do that. No parliament can do that. You have been given the number of days that you've been allotted. And he would say, yes, though there can be things like murder and wars can, can cut life short. You are in the hands of God and no one's decree. They, they were especially upset with the Pope. That's where Pope Gregory VIII, that's where the calendar change came from. They, they being Church of England or, or the Protestant were thinking that the Pope was robbing them of 11 days. He says, nobody can take you out of God's hands. Nobody can quench the purpose of God for your life. And whatever the day on the calendar is called, you are in the hand of God. And that was a good thing that I think we need to remember today. I don't mean because of riots, but I think we need to understand that life is, is given to us as a gift of God. And not only is it given to us as a gift of God, but it's given to us as a gift for which we must give account. 
Let's read from Matthew 25. And we're going to read Jesus' parable about the money. Now, can I just stir up one more controversy? Uh, at least I'm not taking 11 days from you. But um, you, you can go and hear a lot of people, especially during pledge month, and especially when folks are into a health and wealth prosperity gospel, you'll hear this a lot. You'll hear things like nearly 40% of Jesus' parables were about money. Or, or you'll hear that one out of seven verses in the Gospels is about money. And people have said the kingdom of God and the, the mission of Jesus was to make us wealthy so that we can take over the world. And, and if Jesus wasn't interested in money, uh, he wouldn't have talked about it that much. But loved ones, what we need to understand is that, especially in the parables, Jesus used money to illustrate something totally different. This is not a teaching about money. And, and we do it a disservice when we look at passages like this and Jesus says, this is how to spend your money. No, Jesus was saying, this is how to use your life. You say, well, why did he talk about money so much? Because of two reasons, I think. Number one, whenever somebody says, let's talk about money, your ears perk up. It's not just E.F. Hutton. And... The other thing is that Jesus spoke to a people where money was a day-to-day -day issue. And if they could get their arms around, how can I be better off with money? It would get their attention. So when Jesus, almost without exception, I don't have time to go through all of those verses, but almost without exception, when Jesus is teaching about money, now there are some things he makes clear about money. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of things which he possesses. That's clearly about money and things. But most of the time when Jesus talk, is talking about money, he says, listen to me, just as a wise man would manage his money well, you need to manage your life well. You need to manage your days well. Jesus was not into a, a health and wealth prosperity gospel. Jesus did not die to make us comfortable. Jesus died to make us holy. And whenever we take the gospel message off of that, now I, I know that there are principles about giving, give and it'll be given unto you. Uh, put God first and, and he'll honor you. You know, remember the first fruits and you can do more with 90% than you can 100%. That's, that's money. I understand that. But Jesus was not consumed with money. He was consumed with people understanding how to spend their life. And money was a good way to illustrate it. Again, the kingdom of heaven will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted his wealth to them. To one, he gave five bags of gold, to another two bags, and to another one bag, each according to his ability. Then he went on his journey. The man who had received five bags of gold went at once and put his money to work and gained five bags more. So also the one with two bags of gold gained two more. But the man who had received one bag went off, dug a hole in the ground, and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those servants returned and settled accounts with them. The man who had received five bags of gold brought the other five. Master, he said, you entrusted me with five bags of gold. See, I've gained five more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. 
You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. The man with two bags of gold also came. Master, he said, you entrusted me with two bags of gold. See, I have gained two more. His master replied, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Come and share your master's happiness. Then the man who had received one bag of gold came. Master, he said, I knew you were a hard man harvesting where you have not sown and gathering where you have not scattered seed. Now, there's no reason that we can see for this attitude to be adopted. So I was afraid I went out and hid your gold in the ground. See, here is what belongs to you. His master replied, you wicked, lazy servant. So you knew that I harvest where I've not sown and gather where I've not scattered seed. And when he said, so you knew that, he said, so this is the way you figure it. Okay. Well, then you should have put my money on deposit with the bankers so that when I returned, I would have received it back with interest. So take the bag of gold from him and give it to the one who has 10 bags. For whoever has will be given more and they will have an abundance. Whoever does not have, even what they have will be taken from them. And throw that worthless servant outside into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is not saying if you don't handle your money well, you're going to hell. That's not what he's saying. He's telling a parable. He's telling a story. You remember the word uh, parable comes from parabole and it just means to cast alongside. Um, in other words, you have the truth laid out, the scripture laid out, and then a parable is cast alongside to shed light on what the scripture was teaching. Now, I want us to understand what is before us, and then I want us to cover those three principles we're to live up to. Uh, here's the first thing that's before us. Number one is the word options. Loved ones, you and I have options. We do have a say to how we end up when our life is over. First of all, a person may waste their life. In other words, their life, after it's all over, they look back, I've, 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 I've wasted more than I've created. I have a deficit. Um, I, I, I have a few high spots, but most of what I've lived out has been wasteful and it's been absolutely meaningless. Absolutely meaningless. I will never forget, I won't mention the name because family is still living, not, in, not anybody in this church or even in this state, but I will never forget praying with someone in intensive care and they had given their heart to the Lord. They were told that they had a matter of hours at most a couple of days to live and they wept and I said I took their hand and I said listen you need to be assured that Jesus has forgiven your sins because I thought he was just he, he had when, when we had prayed before he said I can't believe Jesus would save me after I've wasted my life and he said I believe Jesus has forgiven my sins and I said well what's troubling you he said I I don't want it to be so, but I know when I see him, I will have nothing to show for my life. Now that has nothing to do with his salvation. And I assured him that Jesus would welcome him full steam ahead. But I don't know if he ever got over that. I'm going in like the old song said, must I go in empty handed? He was, he was terrified of that. So we can waste our life 
and you can still go to heaven if you come to the Lord. But a person may simply spend their life. You say, well, what's the difference between wasting my life and spending my life? Well, waste creates a deficit, but spend, you just break even. In other words, you may say, this is what I've been given. This is what I can do. And I'm not going to go out on a limb. I'm not going to take any risk. I'm not going to get involved in sacrifice. I'm not going to love my neighbor as I love myself. I'm not going to be willing to live and die for my spouse and my children. I'm just even Stephen. I'm just going to break even and I won't be a deficit or there'll be no liabilities, but there won't be any great gains. I'll just spend what I took in. And that's better than wasting. But let me tell you the third option. A person can also invest their life. Are you guys with me? You're awfully quiet today. Let me, and wait a minute. South Carolina lost last night, right? Yeah. Okay. That's it. That's it. Get over it. Get over it. The kingdom of God's going on. Kingdom of God is going on. Let me tell you what it means to invest your life. To invest your life means that you realize you only had so much to give. And by the way, people that invest their life don't invest because they have more. People that invest, invest because they've made a decision on how my life will be spent. Um, And it always produces an overflow. Um, I think of Elijah, or, or excuse me, of Elisha. And we know from the story that Elisha died. He got a sickness like everybody else. He died like everybody else. <clears throat> but when you read about Elisha's life, it's just phenomenal the way it just, he just keeps pouring out into the lives of others. And after he had been dead uh, for probably over a year, because it speaks of his bones, not his decaying uh, uh, body, um, but the bones of Elijah were in a cave in a tomb and Israel was at war and an Israeli soldier fell on the field of battle and died, not wanting his body to be desecrated. His friends opened up a tomb that was nearby and threw him inside, perhaps with the intent of coming back and burying him later or bringing him back to his homeland uh, later a hometown later to be buried properly. What they did not know is that when they threw him in, well, I don't know that they threw him in, but when they laid him in, they laid him on top of the corpse that had already been put there. And it was Elisha. Now Elisha has been dead the better part of a year. Um, and there was such a residual power in the bones of Elisha that the soldier came back to life. Now, I don't think that's a doctrine. I don't think we need to go to the graves of dead people and, 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 and lay over. I mean, and I, I think it's good to go to the graves of people like Elisha and honor them and, and, and even to meditate. But I, I don't think we plug in to get more power necessarily. But it was an amazing thing. The point I'm trying to make is that Elisha is a model He's a model of someone that invested their life. And when someone invests their life, even after they're gone, they're still pouring into the lives of others. 
Okay, so the question we've got to ask today is all of us are going to face God. All of us are going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And after this, the judgment. When we stand before the Lord, will we stand before him having wasted our lives or having spent our life or having invested our life? Now, the first thing is that we've got options. Okay, waste, spend, invest. The second thing we need to realize when we look at this passage is that God has a plan for you. You have options and you have opportunities is a, is a way to say the second thing. Listen to what Paul wrote to the Ephesians. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Now we've got that down pretty good. We're not saved by works. We're saved by grace that operates through faith. But what role do works play? That's in the next verse. For we are God's handiwork created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Loved ones, that means before your mama and daddy ever knew each other, God had a plan for you. And before you were born, there's a purpose for your life and my life that God has established. Now, here's the third thing that I want us to realize is that we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. You say, well, I know we're all got to face God. Well, it's, it's more, it's more than that. Um, if you don't understand the teaching of scripture, you just think there's going to be a big judgment day. Everybody gets up and you're saved. You're lost. You're saved. You're lost. You're saved. You're lost. No, it's not that at all. In fact, there are several judgments. Um, there are, if you include Jesus death on the cross, which was the ultimate judgment of sin, there are about five judgments in scripture. But the two main ones that we think about, apart from the death of Jesus, are, number one, there is the, um, the final judgment, which is, which is reserved for the unrighteous dead. No righteous will be judged at the judgment bar of God, at the great uh, uh, white throne judgment that we read about in the book of Revelation. That's the judgment of the lost. But every one of us, Paul wrote to the Corinthians, every one of us, and he wrote it to the Romans as well. You and I, those of us whose sins are forgiven, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And that is a different word. It's not the same word as the great white throne. The judgment seat <coughs> is a judgment seat of reward. And I think we're going to talk about that next week. We could almost call it a part four next week. We're going to talk about when God says, well done. We won't be judged for our sin if we're Christians. We're not going to get there and get weighed. And God says, well, you did 51% good and 49% bad. It's close, but come on in, you know. No, your sins are forgiven. And I don't mean to be offensive to anyone when I say this. That's why we don't believe in the idea of a purgatory or, or, or situational judgments that are progressive. The blood of Jesus is sufficient. I don't need uh, an intermediate judgment to go to heaven because I don't go to heaven because of my works. I go to heaven because of his works. Now, we, we, don't, we, we don't criticize those that believe in these other judgments. We just don't agree with them. 
but we do need to understand that judgment will take place in our lives. It's, it's a place of reward, and I've explained it a half dozen times through the years. The closest thing we have to it in our system, uh, our judicial system is basically, is this person guilty or innocent? But when you go to the Olympics, you have a three-pronged or three-leveled award uh, platform. And the one who won first place goes to the top. The one who won the silver goes to the side. And the one who won the bronze third place goes and stands a little bit lower. But they're all elevated and they're all winners. They're all being uh, celebrated. Um, one, one has a greater reward than the other. Just as gold is greater than silver and silver is greater than than bronze, but they don't put the first place finisher and the last place finisher up there. It's first, second, and third. This is a place of honor. That's what the judgment seat of Christ will be like. So with that in mind, okay, we've got options, we've got opportunities, and God has a plan for our life, and we're going to appear before the judgment seat. What are these three principles to live up to? They're found in these uh, words of scripture that we read from the gospel of Matthew chapter 25. There's the principle of sovereignty. In other words, God has something that he puts in play in our lives. It's beyond us. I am uh, uh, the color I am because of the sovereignty of God. I have the IQ that I have because of the sovereignty of God. And I hate to blame you with that, but you even have the personality that you have on, based on the sovereignty of God. Now, we, it's up to us to make our personality the best we can be. If you're an extrovert, you need to learn to be the best extrovert you can be. If you're an introvert, you need to learn to be the best introvert you can be. Um, but these things are set by God, and we can't change them. You, you can change behavior, but you can't change your personality. You, you can't very well change your skin color. You, you can't very well change your intelligence. You may bump it a little bit, a few points up, a few points down. I understand that, but these things are basically set. There's the idea of sovereignty. There is secondly, the idea of service. How do we live uh, our lives in light of what the sovereign God has done? And the third thing is stewardship. Understand that I will be rewarded because I am a steward that comes, as we've talked about before, from the old English word sty warden, which means keeper of the pigs. I know steward sounds impressive, but it's basically a pig keeper. Uh, to, to have stewardship means that you are given something over which you exercise care. Now let's talk about those three principles very quickly. Number one, the principle of sovereignty. There are, there are two or three things that are under this idea of sovereignty that we learn from this lesson. Here's number one. Everything I have belongs to God. Uh, as a Christian and as a human, everything I have belongs to God. Now, when we come to stewardship, we're going to find out he lets us manage some things. Some of, some of us here have a beautiful home. Some of us might have a luxury car or a big bank account. But it's all God's, even though he allows you the privilege of managing that. Okay. Everything I have belongs to God. Everything I have, I, I owe him thanks for everything I accomplish. It's because of his grace extended toward me. Okay. That's a, that's a view. Now, not everybody holds that view, 
But that's the view that we ought to have. And that's the view that Jesus taught. Uh, everything belongs to God. Now, let me tell you something else. Uh, I wish I'd worded this a little bit differently. I said, God has given me at least one talent. Maybe a better way to say that is that we all have talents, but the numbers differ. You say, boy, I know that. I'm just a poor old one talent. I passed, I might even be a half talent. I don't know. <laughs> no, don't sell yourself short. God has given you unique gifts that are for your life and for your service for him. Um, you say, well, what does it mean? One got one talent, one had two, one had five. We, we just need to face the facts. Not everybody is as talented as everybody else. Not everybody even is given the same opportunity as everybody else. Being born in America, we, we might have a lot more opportunity before us than somebody born in Somalia. And we need to understand that God has given us talents and it differs between us. That has nothing to do with our intrinsic value. If you are a seven talent person, that doesn't mean you're better than the one talent person. It might mean you were born in the right circumstances. It might be, mean that you made a decision to apply yourself in school better than someone else did. There's, there's, just this, there's just this formula that has to be worked out. Who I am as a result of how I was born, where I was born, when I was born, and how I lived my life out. But God gives everybody at least one talent. I love a story Rick uh, Joyner tells about a vision he had in which... He went to heaven, and I'm, I'm not doing it justice here, but time won't permit. Uh, he was about to meet the person that was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And he wondered if it could be Martin Luther or John Calvin or one of the popes, or if it could be Jeremiah or Ezekiel or one of the prophets. And he found out in his vision that it was a homeless man that lived on the streets of Charlotte. The greatest in the kingdom. And, and when he found out why he was considered the greatest in the kingdom, the man had just a horrible life. But when he came to Jesus, his sole devotion was to be everything Jesus called him to be and to do everything Jesus called him to do. And he said, nobody has ever measured up to my plan. And this was a, 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 like a parable. Nobody has measured up to my plan for their life like this single man. That's why Jesus could say about John the Baptist who had probably at best, probably at best about 18 months of ministry and ended up being beheaded because of the evil intentions of the government. Life cut short, we would call it a life wasted. But Jesus said he's the greatest of the kingdom, uh, talking about all the Old Testament, He's, he's the greatest prophet that's ever been because, as far as we can tell, John measured up to everything that God wanted him to do. Now, we have at least one talent, and that leads to the third thing, God expects me to use my talents. Now, that's sovereignty. This is what God says, I'm putting this in your life. Everything that you have belongs to me. You can't be angry because someone has more than you. You can't feel arrogant because someone has less than you. You've got to understand, I've given you these talents. It's not your choosing, and I expect you to use them. 
Okay, here's the second principle. That's the principle of sovereignty. Then there's the principle of service. What do I do with the talent or the talents that God has given me? What do I do with it? Well, I have to understand two things that will keep me from living out my role as a servant. Number one, it's wrong to bury what God has given me. It's wrong to bury what God has given me. And he also points out very graphically that it's fear that keeps me from using my talent. I think two things can be particularly devastating when it comes to our service. Um, number one is a fear that um, paralyzes us. I'm not good enough. I don't know enough. I'm not talented enough. And the list goes on and on. It's self-absorption. I can't tell you how many people I pastored through the years that, that um, would, would not come to Christ simply because they said, I'm not good enough, as though we come to him on the basis of our goodness. The second thing that pe keeps people away from God is that they don't understand the true nature of God. They don't understand the true love of God. The world has a twisted view of God. Secular society says, if God were a God of love, why do people have cancer? If God were a God of love, why are some people homeless? If God was a God of love, why do some people suffer? See, they operate from a foundational flaw, and that is they think that sickness and rape and murder and homelessness and racism and, and lack of justice, all of these things are because God has said it's all right or because even God has allowed it. But <clears throat> the, the heart of Christianity tells us this, loved ones, these things are in the world not because God put them here. These things are in the world because we embrace them as rebels against his word and rebels against his presence. And I will never be able to come up with a gospel that satisfies the humanistic mindset that said God's not worthy of us. God's not worthy of us because of all the bad things that he's done. And loved ones, practical Christian theology says we are not worthy of God because of all we have done. The, you see, it's, it's like this. The, the master in this story said to the one who had the one talent, he said, I knew you were a hard man. And you're not fair in your dealings. That's what he said. And the master said, so that's the way you see me? When he said, so you knew I was a, that wasn't a, yeah, you had it right. You, you picked me out of the crowd. No, he was saying, that's really the way you view me? Then I'll have to treat you that way. Is that the way you really want to be treated? You see, I've told you this, and I've got to say it one more time, though I say it a dozen times a year. There is nothing I can do that will make God love me more than he already does. And there is nothing I will do that will make God love me less than he already does. Now that's more than just a cute cliche. That was the turning point in my life. Now I knew God loved me and I thank God for my church. Thank God for my heritage. I have no complaints about that. But one of the dangers of, of, a, of a Pentecostal 
heritage is that we're, we're into holiness so much as we ought to be. I wish the rest of Christianity could kind of embrace some holiness uh, at times as well as our own church. We, we, we need to understand it does make a difference how we live. But I, I, was, I was living the first few years of my Christianity, <coughs> I lived in a place where I, I love you, Lord, but I don't know if I love you enough. I'm serving you, Lord, but I don't know if I'm serving hard enough. I'm praying, but I don't know if I'm spending enough time down on my knees. It was a, it was a God that no matter what I did, he always demanded more. And the thing that changed my life when I, was when I realized I ought to love him with all my heart. I ought to serve him with all my strength. I ought to, I, I'm sure I ought to do more of everything good that I'm doing. But that doesn't make him love me one bit more. There's nothing I can do. And I want you to hear me. I want you that's sitting there with your Pop-Tart and your cup of coffee. There's nothing you can do that will make him love you more. And there's nothing you will do that will make him love you less. That doesn't mean we don't live right. But please understand this. Your living right doesn't make you more acceptable in the eyes of God. When Moses was so upset with Israel and one of the speakers yesterday talked about, it, I can't remember who it was. But when they were talking about Moses being so upset with Israel and their sin, uh, you know, he had broken the, the tablets and, and he said, Lord, he said, I, I, this is in Exodus uh, 33 and 34. Moses said, Lord, I want to know you. And Moses prays one of the most powerful prayers. This will take you to another level of Christianity. He said, Lord, I want to see um, your your." I want to see your heart. He said, you've showed us your works, but show me your ways. That was the word he used ways. He said, I know your works, but show me your ways. He was saying, I know your hand, but show me your heart. He was saying, show me your glory. And God said, all right, I'll set you up for this. We will have a divine appointment. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of the rock. And he said, I will show you what I am. I will pass by and you will only see me as I pass by, but you will know what I am when I pass by. Now, God was saying, you know, Moses, you couldn't possibly understand all that I am. I'm not going to look into your eyes and say, behold, God. He said, I'm going to walk by and he said, all you're going to see is the trail of my passing you're going to look on my back. You're going to see me as I go by, but that will be enough to show you what I'm really like. And Moses was probably thinking in terms of fire and lightning and, and judgment and, and throwing people to hell, you know, with their clothes on. He's thinking of all of this stuff. And this is what happens. This is what the Lord himself said when he walked by. The Lord the Lord, <coughs> he didn't cough, <coughs> a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. I bet that was a surprise for Moses. 
He thought God was either a grandpa that didn't enforce any of the rules or he thought God was an angry lightning thrower that all you had to do is mess up and you'd be nothing but a grease spot. But when God passed by, he said, Moses, this is what I am. Yes, I judge sin. Yes, I will judge the wicked. But these are the adjectives you are to know me by. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. And that's interesting because iniquity and transgression are two different words. Transgression is when I just break the law. Iniquity is my broken nature. God says, I don't just forgive you when you break the law. I forgive you when you're fighting those internal battles. He said, I forgive sin. He says, that's who I am. Loved ones, the greatest revelation of God you can come to is understanding the balance of his hand and his heart and understanding that God loves you more than you can imagine. And that's why we've, if I've learned this. Anytime in prayer or I'm dealing with something, if fear is mixed in the equation, I've gotten my eyes off him. I've gotten my eyes off him. Here's the third word, the principle of stewardship. Stewardship. This basically says, if I don't use it, I will lose it. But if I use my talents, I'll be rewarded. This is what we live up to. We serve a sovereign God that has put you where you are. Now, loved ones, I don't, I don't mean that bad things that have happened to you have been the will of God, but you are who you are, born when you were born, for such a time as this. I don't know why we just use that verse about Esther when some great momentous occasion or the pastor needs a big offering for a project. God's put you into the kingdom for such a time as this. Every day we need to understand he's put you where you are for such a time as this. And you can minister life, you can minister death. You can waste your life, you can spend your life, or you can invest your life so that even your dead bones raise the dead. Here are the life lessons. Sovereignty, service, stewardship. Here's number one. A person's wasted or spent life can be redeemed through the grace of God. That's so simple, but we don't want to forget that. It's never too late to come to the cross. You say, well, I've lived so long I couldn't possibly do enough good works to outdo my bad works. Well, that's what we've been saying all along. It's not your works that matter on the day of judgment. It's his work on your behalf. I tell you, I, my favorite part of the book of, uh, the book of, uh, the book of, of a Christmas Carol, uh, Charles Dickens, the, my, uh, that's just, that's late in the New Testament. Um, the greatest part of the story of Scrooge to me is at the end when Scrooge has been redeemed. And it, and it says that Scrooge went from being the, and Dickens says it so much more beautifully, Scrooge went from being the epitome of what Christmas was not to the very embodiment of what Christmas was. And, it, and he goes on to say, if it could be said that anybody kept Christmas, it could be said of Scrooge. But you know what? We don't have to go to fiction to illustrate that point. 
Paul said, those of you that have come to Jesus, you are a new creation. You are a new creation. John would say, you have passed, not you're going to, but you have passed from death to life. Paul put it this way. He said, the things I once hated, now I love. And the things that I used to love, now I hate because I am a brand new Christian. Jesus illustrated it this way. He said, you must be born again. Jesus didn't say it's a matter of a turning over a new leaf. He said, it's a new life. God can redeem us. None of us are batting a thousand. Even those of us that might have come to the Lord early might not have served him well. So it's not a matter of, of just serving the Lord a long time, although it's, that's better if you can do that. But no matter where you are, you come to him now. You come to him now. Number two, there are numbers that are critical for the use of talents. You've got to understand a couple of numbers if you're going to understand this parable of talents. The first number is 168. That's how many hours you have in every week. You have been given the same number of hours as everyone else. The second number is 70. That's the number of years we're allotted under normal circumstances. The psalmist said uh, 70 years is allotted to man, maybe 80 if they're strong or have a, a good medical plan. <laughs> now the first, the 168 hours is guaranteed. The latter is not. We all know people that pass before they turn 70. We all know people that have lived long past 70. It's an average. It's a principle. In the early days of Scripture, they lived hundreds of years. Then with the judgment of the flood, they lived less years, about 120 years. But by the time of David, we've moved farther and farther from the tree of life, and we're down to an average of about 70 years. But... The key to the 168 hours and the key to the 70 years is balance and management. Balance and management. So if you're going to make good use of your talents, live a balanced life and manage your life under the principles of God's word. Here's the final thing. There is a difference between the caution of wisdom and the paralyzing power of fear. Loved ones, I, I, I'm not saying that you need to, to watch Shark Tank and become a big entrepreneur to be successful. I'm not saying that you have to do like Colonel Sanders and take your last Social Security check, been a cook all your life, and take your last Social Security check you got and invest it in some, some herbs and spices. We don't know what they are because they're secret. And... <laughs> And, and start a new business. I mean, how many people at 68 years old are able to go start a new business? Not many, but you don't have to do that. You just have to understand that there's a time to be wise, but there's also a time to just trust God. See, here's the principle. I can do nothing with what I've been dealt with is what some people say. They, they say, um, 
you know, I, I, I just, I, if I was like so-and-so, I would have more to work with. Well, they, you know, I learned something studying the life of, uh, of um, Stevie Wonder one time. You know who Stevie Wonder is? He's a blind musician. And um, I'm imagining he's probably in his late 70s by now. But um, uh, Stevie Wonder said one time, he said, I could, have, I could have made up my mind that my life was ruined because I was blind. He said, but then something happened that I want to tell you about that helped me understand that's not the case. There was a mouse loose in the classroom. The teacher was terrified of mice, as were most of the children. And little Stevie tensed up because he couldn't see where this mouse was. But something amazing happened. Nobody could find the mouse. Somebody would say, oh, there, I, we saw him. We caught a glimpse of him running here and there. The teacher was about to panic because they couldn't keep up with the, the mouse. And Stevie Wonder said, everybody, be quiet. And after a few seconds, he said, Miss So-and-So, the mouse is behind the music sheets on the piano. Well, had God miraculously healed this guy? No. But he heard it. Nobody else heard it. And he said, I would later learn in life that for every sense I lack, my other senses have a tendency to make up for them. And he said, don't get me wrong. I'd rather have a hearing aid and have my eyesight. But I've learned that in this world, there is a tendency that whatever we lack, we make up for in other areas. So he says, we must not let our, um, what was the word he used? Our handicaps, I think was the word he used, keep us from living life to the fullest. Self-doubt, self-pity, self-consciousness. These are the things that destroy us. Self-consciousness makes us afraid to take the risk, afraid we'll be ruined, afraid we'll be humiliated. Self-pity says, well, you know, I, if, if I was Corey, I'd be fine. He's got five talents. I've only got two. Lord, don't expect me to measure up to Corey. He's got more to work with than I do. You know, the interesting thing we're going to find out next week about the judgment seat of Christ, not any of you in here or any of you listening will be judged compared to anybody else. Not anybody else. No other name will be brought to bear in your judgment because the judgment seat of Christ where we receive our reward, the only thing we're measured against is what did God expect of us? Not what did God give Glenn or what did God give Corey, but what did God expect of us with what he gave us? Self-doubt. Loved ones, God says, I've given you a life. I've given you talents. It all belongs to me. It's a sin to waste it or to hide it. It's, it's, it's something that you need to understand. You are responsible for this gift. It's called stewardship. And you will receive your reward based on how well you managed your life. Father, we're out of time today and I ask for your help in Jesus' name. There are some perhaps here, there are some perhaps listening that maybe for the first time in their life, they've really come to grips with the understanding, I must give account for my life. And, and, and Lord, it's not just the big judgment of 
am I a sinner or am I saved? That's already determined by our decision to follow you. But we must give our, an account for the way we've lived our lives. And Lord, in your mercy and grace, it's never too late. It's never too late to come to you. It's never too late to start. It's never too late to start. And I'm asking for everyone in this building, over in Brown Chapel, folks watching at home, whatever the venue, I'm praying that if there's anyone that doesn't know that they have the assurance of their sins forgiven, that they will take that step to come to know you. If you are here today, when we dismiss and the worship team comes back, others around you will just take a little time to worship the Lord before they leave. We want to invite you to come to the front and our ministry teams will escort you over to our prayer area uh, out of the line of sight of everybody else. And all you have to do is just say, I want to know Jesus and the prayer partners will know what to do. For those of you, we're okay with the number. For those of you that are watching at home or you're watching this later, there's a number that will appear on your screen. And if you will call that number and you will just say, I want prayer for this or that, or I want to give my life to Jesus, the, the, the prayer partners that answer the phone will be glad to help you. God says, this is my gift to you. Your gift to me is how you manage it. Let's take that very seriously. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening in. We are honored uh, for you to give us an hour and a half or so of your time every week. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face to shine upon you. If you're here, uh, as, the, as the worship team begins, just come on to the front and we'll escort you to the prayer area. If you're at home, I hope you'll give us a call. God bless you. I love you.